Welcome to Primordial Tao, Present Tao, a podcast about all things Taoism. Our conversations and interviews will discuss ancient and modern Taoist wisdom teachings, spiritual practices, seasonal longevity and healing traditions, relationship guidance, and profound insights on walking an authentic and meaningful path, however you choose to walk it. Welcome home to the ocean of Tao. With Qigong and meditation, cannabis has pros and cons. And if you're really focused on where the pros are pro specifically for you, specifically for what you're focused on doing and learning and where that learning is meant to take you and you're being skillful about it and you're, you know, less is more, it's going to be probably a helpful thing. But modern cannabis, especially being so high in THC and so low in CBD, uh, unless you're using it almost medically, like you're, you're not going to develop much momentum or progress. And that, that's also true about healing, like from a deeper psychological level. Um, if all you do is blow off steam, you're never going to get any water. You know, and water is often sort of symbolic of healing. So. Welcome to Primordial Dao, Present Dao. I'm your host, Ravi Kaler, and I'm here with Dr. Michael Smith, and this is episode nine, Cannabis and Qigong, the pros and cons. Hey, Mike, how's it going? I'm well. How are you, Robbie? I'm doing awesome. Um, I'm really excited about this topic, and uh, I feel like we should just jump right in. Let's so do. cannabis and Qigong. As a Qigong student and as a cannabis user, um, in my experience, these two things work quite well together. Now... Obviously, there's a whole bunch of other different factors, such as set and setting and intention and frequency. And I hope that we get, we're able to get into all this stuff today. Um, so shall we start with some, uh, I don't know, where, where do you want to start with this, Mike? Uh, well, I'm excited to talk about this too. It's uh, something I've had a lot, of, a lot of experience with in both ways, depending on the teacher I've, teachers I've had in the past and what they told me to do or never do and uh, what I've done, you know, back and forth, I suppose, with, you know, the black and white of the should or shouldn't, <laughs> you know, of cannabis and uh, martial arts practice, spiritual practice and, and things like that. So there, uh, there's definitely, you know, quite a, quite a lot of disparate opinions. And um, I think that's where I want to maybe start with is in the last conversation we had, I brought up the context of Tsaran in the sense of what's going on now, what contemporary life is like. Uh, we're both in Canada. A lot of countries in the world, developed countries in the world, are legalizing cannabis either for recreational use or just for medical use. I think half of the states in the U.S. have medical cannabis available, and I don't remember how many have recreational cannabis available. So we can you know, kind of acknowledge that... Uh, from a contemporary society point of view, which is what we all learn from and grow up in, 
the use and understanding of cannabis, both medically and recreationally, is becoming uh, ubiquitous or common. It's not like something just freaky people did in the 60s. Now it's something that, you know, in most cities, you know, well, depending where, on where you live, you can walk down the street and walk into a store and buy whatever you want. And if you go to the places you're allowed to smoke or, you know, use it, you can just use it. So that contemporary context has changed things quite a bit. And having said that, there's this other teaching in Taoism we call Shurfei, which kind of translates to this knot or that knot. And in the, I'm sorry, what, this what? This knot or that knot. knot. Okay. But not like in the sense of anti, like absolutely not. Okay. So there's that context for people. I, I've heard some people I would respect as communicators and teachers of Qigong and Neigong and meditation who are absolutely not. You don't even want to be in a th you know, within a thousand feet of anything that messes with your consciousness at all. And that's not coming from you know any other perspective than dogma or control or you know, there's only one highway to, you know, heaven or whatever. And uh, I always question the validity of people who make statements that is based on surefay or just this absolutely black and white, no matter what, it's just wrong. And it's also the same with people who may believe that uh, cannabis is a, the gift from creation and we, we should all just stop being... Uh, control freaks and just get high every day and chill and be happy and the world would be just such a better place if it was in the water supply or something, you know, in, in the sense that there's sort of two sides to that coin and um, I'm not on either side of that coin, but I just wanted to bring that, that context up that if you're hearing this and you already have an answer, interesting, but um, I'm not going to agree with people who are on either side of the coin because it's not my job to be right. It's my job to help people solve problems. And as a clinician, you know, that that means anything that's going to help people is going to help people. And also working with a lot of people who are prone to addictive behavior, cannabis may or may not the best be, best, be the best way to go. But I just want to sort of start the conversation off with, this is a very individual conversation. Like each individual person hearing this has different needs, different history, different motivations, maybe a different uh, outcome that they're focused on in their practice. So I'm just being really clear and maybe popping some balloons if anyone's already starting to beat their chest with their proverbial yes or no. That's not interesting to me and I'm going to try and defy your dogma. <laughs> right. Either way, because dogma isn't how you live. It's how you stop thinking. Right, this is the answer, therefore I don't need to think about it anymore and yeah. follow me in your right and don't follow me in your wrong. Yeah, so I'm just bringing up that context because it's a loaded thing for people. Yeah, big time. So Mike, um, I say we start off with uh, some of the history with, uh, with cannabis because obviously it's a plant and it's been on this earth for who knows how long. And, um, you know, there might have been some evolutionary stuff between us and and the plant, so... Um, what's your, what do you know about some of the history? Like when did, when did cannabis start? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, cannabis has been around for a very long time, uh, from an archeological point of view, the, I, I, maybe I should just sort of 
jump in from the side a little bit for people. So as a clinician and educator, I often speak about medical cannabis on panels with, you know, pharmacologists and medical doctors and psychiatrists. And we just talk all about the science and the chemistry and the, the do's and don'ts and stuff. So um, when I often speak to the history, I ask people to consider something because I, I want us to feel how kind of rooted this is and in, in just human experience and uh, evolution and, you know, health and survival and stuff. So this, this is the way I, I like to start it off with if, if it's cool to just <laughs> go with this because it usually really helps out. So if you look at uh, any survival situation, you know, in the modern sense that your car breaks down or something like that, um, you need shelter, you need fire, you need water, you need food. And humans have always needed those things, right? They're like the fundamental, you know, structure of your, your survival. Now, if you were to add one more thing to your survival advantage, you know, 100,000 years ago, or if you, you know, were in a car accident in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> you got to have fire and shelter and water and food. But if you want to get like a black belt upgrade uh, to your survival advantage, it would be cordage. The ability to make string and rope and traps and nets and fishing line and uh, all kinds of other things, bowstrings and stuff. And hemp is one of the best plants in the world for cordage. So anytime human beings, since we were very close to still being animals, as soon as we figured out how to make cordage, we naturally, um, even before we knew how to like plant food uh, or plant seeds to get certain plants to grow, we would naturally stay in regions where we had access to really good cordage. And that's true if you look at the distribution of, of different uh, First Nations people across Canada, Native Americans across America, you know, basically indigenous people, it's always going to be around certain kinds of access, water uh, and cordage are the, you know, the two big limiting factors. So it's just an interesting thing to consider. Like, yeah, humans have been using this to make string forever and the seeds are really nourishing and they're, you know, some some plants could make pounds and pounds of, uh, you know, really important food per plant. So again, humans would naturally migrate, navigate, and locate themselves around anywhere cannabis grows um, because it's uh, a sudden massive survival advantage. And that's Yeah, and when I was in India, I noticed that it actually kind of grows everywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, so if, if before we uh, learn, before we had fire, we already had a relationship with cannabis. And because cannabis doesn't become psychoactive and, until you heat it up to a certain uh, de uh, degree of temperature, we had no idea up until fire and somebody, you know, throwing the cordage pile on the fire or something like that, uh, figured out that, you know, you inhale the smoke uh, and then all of a sudden things change. So it's, it's just a, a for, for those of us who are thinking historically, like how far back, you know, does string go? And once fire came along, you know, how far, how long did it take people to, you know, by accident figure out that inhaling the smoke of this plant and different parts of the plant would change your state of being? And from a early shamanic point of view, I mean, that's, there's so few things in, in nature that really do that, that we would naturally, you know, gravitate to that. And when you look at archaeological evidence of how many different people from all kinds of different parts of the world, when they dig them up, were buried with a bag of cannabis or with some uh, psilocybin or magic mushrooms or other things. So uh, 
anything that can affect your state of being has, has been a, a massive benefit to evolution in many ways. Yeah, and there's a, like Terrence, Terrence McKenna talks about something called the stoned ape theory. Because mm-hmm. um, there's like one or two million years where our brain size doubled. And his theory is that it's due to the introduction of psychedelics into our diet. Um, is that something that you resonate with or something that's based on history? Or I resonate with uh, Terrence in a lot of ways around uh, use of psychedelics or cannabis and other things around associative uh, parts of the brain around the evolution of language, uh, ceremony, songs, painting, art, uh, all kinds of other things. Uh, the doubling in brain size is pretty much established to what's called the aquatic ape theory in the sense of every time ice ages or calamities happen, the human population shrinks and ends up next to the ocean where we eat mostly raw fish up until we you know, figure out fire. And over 2 million years, our brain size has doubled, but most of the kind of medical anthropological sort of version of that uh, is based more on the sudden increase in essential fatty acids and saturated fats and other things uh, as humans you know, kind of went from more gatherer primates to hunter gatherers to hunters you know living off bone marrow and a lot of raw fish and, and things like that so the brain size thing for me isn't really a psychedelic thing um, it's it's more of a sudden drastic change in nutrition uh, which again, from just a clinical point of view, makes more sense. But I totally agree with Terence ab- about um, if you change the structure of conscious experience, you're going to change the structure of the the neurological framing and neuroplasticity of the brain. And absolutely, I, I agree that anything that changes uh, how we experience consciousness that much has turned us into who we are now. Yeah, it could be even be the introduction of like a lot of the art that we see because there's a lot of things that I see that are kind of inspired by by psychedelics. Mm-hmm. Very cool. So we started off with figuring out that this stuff is rope and hemp and we can use it to build stuff. And then came some magical day where somebody figured out that, hey, this I can use this to change state. And... So from there, there's like a, there's a whole another door that opens. Mm-hmm. Um, did you want to speak to that a little bit on a historical perspective? Well, I would say that, um, and I'll frame this around the context of modern life and addiction. What if the state shift is your birthright? And I'll give that a couple of different frames of reference. So what if no matter who your ancestors are, you know, thousands of years ago, tens of thousands of years ago, maybe even 200,000 years ago, they had figured out through certain kinds of breath work, drumming, you know, repetitive sounds, uh, deep hibernative states and things like that, that what mind-body experience uh, can be is a lot more malleable than I think most of us are, are aware of. And what if you know, whatever your, whoever your ancestors are over time became more and more effective and more and more uh, precise and more and more experimental at this whole state shift thing. You know, if it's extended fasting or eventually finding plants that, you know, change our, our state. Uh, you know, if, if there's enough bad weather and you go into a cave and you don't have fire, if you go more than about, you know, 12 to 15 days without light, your pineal gland is going to light up and you're going to have all kinds of really interesting things happen. And that's actually an ancient Taoist practice of, 
uh, light fasting. So, I mean, there's places you can go in Malaysia to go into a hotel where you spend three weeks or two weeks in darkness for the sole purpose of uh, state shift and consciousness expansion without using any kind of uh, plant or, you know, medicine and things. So, again, my what if, you know, because I'm being playful with this. <laughs> Uh, so what if state shift is your birthright and if it's been in your evolutionary line for, you know, 20, 30, 50,000 years, that makes it a need. So, you know, you're, you're a child, you're an adolescent, life gets tricky, could be a hundred years ago, could be yesterday. Your deep driving compulsion is I need to expand my mind. I need to change my perspective. I need to get the anxiety out of my solar plexus. And I have this deep gnawing knowing that there's something I can do that's going to kind of pop the proverbial balloon uh, of, of this situation. And if you don't know what those choices are, you're going to naturally reach to whatever your society offers you. And if it's just a six pack of beer and uh, you know, something like that. That's where people go because we have this implicit need, this birthright, this incredibly long history of shifting our state as a part of just managing being alive, managing dealing with loss, managing dealing with change. So if it's a need, if it's an implicit part of our conscious memory of being, we're going to find a way to do that. Right. So when you look at kind of modern, especially like North American religious conservative ways of approaching life, it turns out those people are doing some of the weirdest, most harmful things to themselves and other people. And I'm not judging them, you know, in, in some finger pointing way. I'm just speaking from statistics because they believe that state shift is evil. Right. Life is serious. Got to toe the line. You got to be good. But if you're about ready to lose it, you're not allowed to lose it. You know, you can you know, have a drink or you can go to church or you can maybe do this or that. Um, maybe you can shoot something you know, in your backyard, but you're, you're not allowed to go and dance ecstatically for days. You're not allowed to, you know, do all the things that people have been doing forever. So when, you, you know, you look at, you know, potential, you know, human harm, it's often in the most rigid societies or parts of society that are, you know, supposed to be like keeping it together, but they turn out to be the most dangerous, right? Right, it, yeah, and I have a story that that's kind of, that relates to that. Um, so, when I was kind of going through my qigong practice, and there's been some traumatic events in my life, and there's energy that's being released, and uh, I noticed that I, I would move kind of almost like a snake. Mm. And when I had a chat with you about it, you said that's you know your body's way of regulating all the excess energy. And I, I actually met a Christian woman who. Uh, same thing was happening to her, but she said that, oh, she can't do that because that's that's the snake, that's the devil. Mm -hmm. Right. So again, and I'm so, not trying to turn this into a, a, a finger pointing thing or an attack on anyone's way of approaching life. I'm just trying to, I guess, anchor our perspective in what's been around forever and what happens to people when we take that away from them. Because Addiction. the other side of that coin is all of the things, say, in North America, because that's where we live, um, you know, since the 60s and, you know, whatever, where people have suddenly said, you know what, I I've come to realize that, you know, in whatever way, if it's using, you know, breath work or Qigong or meditation or cannabis or, 
mushrooms or nowadays you can usually find ayahuasca and things uh, often in a a traditional way without too much effort. So we we were having this really beautiful unraveling and in a way return to the, the innate human birthright that we need to loosen our gears sometimes and change our perspective and get a completely different view on, you know, what's up and what's good and what's bad and who am I and who am I not and what's possible in the existential frame of, you know, being consciousness your whole life. So it's a need. Like, And when I, when I bring that up because that's the, often the first conversation I have when I'm doing any kind of public speaking uh, around addiction or if I'm in an addiction, you know, treatment facility or a healing circle or something like that. I just want people to embrace that weird angst, agony, squirming thing in, in our body. It does make us want to squirm around because we're like, I know something can help me with how I'm feeling, but it's not me in the state I'm in right now, Right. So people naturally go, I need to change my state. It's like an ancient urge. So what do people reach for? Whatever you can get your hands on. So it's a six pack of beer or, you know, a Mickey of, you know, something, or it's something you find in the back alley or it's something, uh, you know, you run into somewhere else that usually has more catastrophic side effects. And, and I'm not speaking politically here. I'm, I'm speaking from a socioeconomic point of view. Every society or part of the world that's legalized more and more uh, chemical substance use uh, has solved many of the effects of chemical and substance abuse. Because if now it's allowed, because it's been around for you know 100,000 years and we're just finally admitting that humans have a need and a birthright to solve problems as consciousness by freeing up the the guardrails of consciousness or the conditioning you had and maybe the trauma you suffered around what you're allowed to do and not do. So this expansiousness of expanding of consciousness, this freedom of free will, it's a need. And I'm not saying that to promote the use of anything. I'm using that to remind people that there's a why. And it's also the same why people love Qigong and breathwork and yoga with or without any kind of uh, consciousness shifting experience because they do that by themselves. They don't, you know, maybe always take people to the kind of ecstatic states or uh, consciousness expanding or conditionish breaking, uh, conditioning breaking experiences that uh, plant medicines can have, but they help most of us with day to day stuff, right? Yeah, that's 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 insane. I had no idea that there's that connection. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's why uh, many of these practices exist for, you know, five, 10,000 years because they, they responded to a need. So we kind of had all these like state shift experiences and ancient practices and rituals, maybe even before the introduction of these psychedelics. Would you say that that's true? I, I would say absolutely. I mean, when, when did we have fire and you know how far before fire were we actually pretty much cognitively the same species as we are now you know and why 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 do people especially you know you go to the beach with a kid and they get bored and there's a stick and a a rock they'll sit there and bang the stick against the rock rhythmically because they're fidgeting and bored you know 
And if there's no other frame of reference, then wow, that's a really interesting thing. You bang things together, you do it long enough, you start to like shift the way your mind works and you shift the way your body feels. So I think it's kind of like an of course, this is a, a, it's a functional need, it's an existential need. And as children, we start experimenting with state shift naturally. Yeah, that's like all the all the play that we do. Yeah. So whether we're playing house or playing like animals or stealing our parents' booze or stealing their cigarettes or smoking whatever it is that grows in your backyard to see what happens to you. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's that's really interesting. Yeah. And again, I'm not saying we need those substances unless we do, but we need state shift. Yeah. And then this would just be another way or a tool or I guess a ceremony of introducing somebody to state shift. Mm -hmm. Cause I think like, like even our modern age now, like we're coming all the way back to these substances and maybe introducing them in a, in like a ceremonious way. Um, Cause for someone like myself, like maybe finding like an elder or somebody that can show me how to use some of these things in a, in a proper way um, that could really help all of humanity. Cause you know, we're in 2022 and, I would say there's quite a bit of addiction going on. Yeah, and that that's the equation I'm trying to lay out, you know, for this conversation is we're speaking to a, a need that's ancient. Uh, we're speaking as modern people, that's uh, that Zaran contemporary thing. And we're in the milieu or the mixture of the do's and the don'ts and the law and whether or not you can um, find a ceremonial circle with things like Quachuma, which is the San Pedro cactus or, uh, ayahuasca, which, you know, almost always is done in a traditional ceremonial context. And, <laughs> uh, I'm just going to share a funny thing. Um, uh, I've been engaged in ayahuasca as a, a part of my, experience as a human being for, uh, I don't know, coming up about 18 years now. And I remember when I was really first getting into it, I was, you know, researching things online and I came across a video on YouTube of a couple of kids who'd made, bought or somehow got their hands on like the traditional mixture of things that, you know, we call ayahuasca. And they were sitting in an apartment and they drank it. And then they were, I think, eating peanut butter sandwiches and drinking some kind of soft drink. Uh, and then the medicine came on and it was just this videotape of a couple of maybe, you know, teenagers, uh, people in their early twenties, like freaking out by themselves in an apartment, throwing up all over the place for hours, <laughs> having no idea what to do with this whole thing. And, uh, I'm not laughing from a, a, a place of cruelty or, uh, anything like that. It was just one of those situations where, you know, I had no part in anyone doing that, but I was terrified, but also laughing my ass off, you know, at, at just the, partially the arrogance and partially just the, it goes back to that thing. I, people need to stay, uh, you know, change their mind. And if they know there's something that they can get their hands on, that'll do that. They may or may not have a clue about what's going to happen. And so they may or may not be ready for <laughs> the consequences of what's going to happen. Um, but it's also the beauty of the fact that the human conscious self will risk itself to find out what the true nature of itself is. I mean, every time I've ever taken any kind of really strong medicine in a ceremonial context, there is a little, you know, choice point in my mind going, this might take things too far. 
I don't know how I like, you, you can't know what's going to happen. And that's part of the, the commitment and, and the devotion and, and the, the discipline of, of ceremony is, you know, all bets are off and I hope I'm still okay on the other side of this. And 90% of the time it works out really well. And sometimes you get your butt kicked because you got arrogant or, you know, got impatient or rarely somebody made the medicine in a really, you know, unfortunate way and it made everybody sick. But, um, yeah, well enough about my experience, but I'm just, you know, throwing that out there that this is something people will figure out how to do because it's implicit in our nature. Yeah. Every time before any sort of psychedelic experience, there's always that little bit of nerves right before. Yeah. We're just like, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. But we're, you know, we're going to keep doing that because we're willing to risk the stability, perhaps prison of certain aspects of consciousness to break free of it. And that may or may not go positively, but we're, we're will, most of us are willing to take that risk. Very cool. And this is planet wide, like everywhere you go, there is a history of something like this. I mean, if I turn this back to Chinese medicine and Taoism, uh, in early Taoist practice, there was a few different plants that were psychedelic in China, as well as, believe it or not, they concentrated cloves and nutmeg down to their concentrated oils and they would ingest them, which makes you quite ill in the sense of gastritis and stuff, but will take you to another place in, in the mind. And you have to do it properly. So just FYI, if you're looking for something to do, don't just start eating bags of cloves because that's a bad idea. But I'm just saying, you know, we, for people who are not aware, early Taoist culture is the indigenous culture of Asia. And they had all kinds of experience with um, plants and even using what we consider, you know, kitchen spices to, to refine them down because they have a hallucinogenic property. And I don't remember the exact date, but there was an edict in around, it was around, around 2000 years ago, around uh, as China became more and more uh, a civilization or an empire. And the edict was no more use of hallucinogens, no more orgies, no more, you know, crazy ecstatic shaman parties or whatever, because they thought it was disruptive. <laughs> so, you know, that, that yeah, far it would back, be they, they disruptive were disruptive to the status quo, <laughs> but just to notice, you know, there's actually records of them saying, you're not allowed to do this anymore, which kind of means people have been doing it pretty much up until that day. So Chinese medicine, Taoist practice has a long history of this stuff. And in fact, Chinese medicine, um, it's almost 5,000 years ago that there's, you know, uh, recordings on, you know, uh, uh, bones, uh, carved bones that, uh, describes cannabis and, you know, the function of the plant. And, you know, if you want, I could actually tell you the Chinese medicine therapeutics of every part of the cannabis plant, because, Luckily, sure, but can can what what do you mean by they, they used to carve these on bones? Well, Chinese language started through what's called scapulomancy, where you would throw this the shoulder blade of a an animal into a into hot coals and poke it with a hot stick until it cracked, and then you would take pieces of charcoal and draw the cracks that looked like you know whatever you were trying to figure out. If you're trying to figure out where the the deer are eating, you might draw along the cracks that look closest to the rivers and, and streams where you live. And that might give the, like, this is six, 7,000 years ago. 
Uh, and this, they, they still, they had this similar practices in North America. So scapulomancy is ubiquitous to early indigenous human culture. Um, so anyway, so you draw the charcoal along the cracks in the bone and that might give you a map of where to go hunting deer, you know, a thousand years later, now you're drawing the picture of what might look like a man or a woman when the leader of the tribe wants to decide, <clears throat> you know, what to do about their kid or who should get married or, you know, all this other stuff. And that eventually became the framework for the uh, calligraphy we now see in Chinese uh, language. But when they got into really like scrolls or, or things that were meant to last a long time, uh, they'd be, you know, carving these characters, you know, into bones 5,000 years ago or into bamboo scrolls and other things so that they, you know, that, that was just how they recorded things back then. And luckily for us, you know, they were preserved well enough or lasted that we can actually look at them and read them now and go, oh my God, you know, 5,000 years ago, they actually had a way of understanding the use of cannabis as a part of herbal medicine. And because wow. my teacher... Uh, had escaped China, um, and his family had a very, I guess, high-level relationship with herbal medicine. Uh, they had left China before the communist revolution had taken over, so they still had, uh, you know, the, the teachings and writings on the use of cannabis in, in Chinese medicine. Wow. So that goes into the question, what what did they find? Uh, well, I mean, to, to make sense of it, we'd have to, to use a bit of Chinese medicine terminology, um, which I'm going to be really careful about getting too far into. But if you look at the plant, like most plants, there's going to be a root, a stalk, you know, leaves and flowers and seeds. So in Chinese medicine context, the root of the plant was calming slightly to the nervous system and moistening or nourishing to the lungs and kidneys as well as our boosting kind of uh, what you might call libido, uh, you know, fertility and things like that. The stalk, interestingly enough, uh, and it's still true today, if you boil up the stalk of the plant, especially the first few inches from when it just like grows out of the ground or whatever you might be growing your <laughs> cannabis in these days, it's that first few inches of the stalk that actually mitigates the uh, excessive um kind of trippiness of, of smoking it. And in, in Chinese language, we talk about that as a kind of a wind, a kind of elevation of the shun where the mind is floating and maybe it's fun, maybe it makes you paranoid, maybe it makes you a really good artist, depends on many, many things. But it was understood that if you uh, made a tea out of the stock, then you would mitigate the possibility of having a really intense um, high, or it could be used to bring people down from, you know, mania, you know, psychotic break and things like that. And the seeds as uh, we probably all know, cause you can get it for a breakfast cereal now. Um, it's also very moistening and nourishing and very nutrient dense and very good for the, what's called Qing or the sort of substrate or substance of the physical body because it's just a superfood and I, i'm not certain of this but i think it contains pretty much a complete protein profile as well so wow. holy cow that's great and the leaves um you know which you would eat uh, like a salad or something like that are super good for circulation for the mobilization of chi and blood uh, and also to course or clean the liver and um uh, again, as a clinician who uh, 
supports people using cannabis in, in their, you know, cancer treatment or autoimmune treatment or other things. Um, I can't wait till you can get, uh, you know, you can get wheatgrass shots at like a health food store or at a little, you know, market or something like that. You can also get cannabis leaf shots in some places, depends on who you know <laughs> or what you're doing with your basement. But, uh, I've had the opportunity to, uh, juice, you know, fistfuls of, of cannabis leaves and, and to drink it. And wow, like that's a detox superfood just the leaves. Now with the flowers, um, you have to what's called deep carboxylate or heat up the uh, alkaloids in the plant to a certain degree. So one uh, part of THC shifts over basically on a molecular level and it goes from a, a state that would be just, you know, nice to have to something that will actually uh, effectively change your state, if not completely take you on a journey depending on the kind of cannabis you're getting. And, um, from a Chinese medicine point of view, that's considered to be like an incredibly beneficial painkiller. It's known to treat nausea, um, depression, anxiety, insomnia, and things like that. So, you know, this plant has been used in all of its different parts therapeutically, you know, as dried powders, as teas, as things eventually you would smoke or uh, heat up and then put into food and things like that. Just the, like the way we do now. I mean, humans are pretty crafty and they didn't have the internet or a cell phone to distract them. So, I mean, how long do you think it would take any living person to experiment with interesting plants that grow next to them? Yeah, that'd probably be one of the first things, especially something like cannabis, like that plant looks so different compared to all the other plants and like, it grows for sure, super I'd fast. Be like, like, I mean, four months, you can have a thing that grows 15 feet. So, I mean, it's kind of waving at you. Hello. <laughs> I be might be helpful. I can make string. I can make ropes. I can make hammocks. And once you guys get fire sorted out, woohoo, we're going to have a lot of fun. It's really cool. I had no idea with the actual therapeutic use of the whole plant, including the roots. Yeah. It's actually quite amazing. Yeah. Thousands of years. Yeah, and, and for our listeners and, and kind of the modern day use, I'm sure there's somebody out there and maybe many people that just think of cannabis as, hey, this is what I smoke and maybe I'm using it for a therapeutic use. But, you know, this actually makes me want to get my own seeds and get a plant and start actually using this uh, like the traditional way. Yeah, and you can do that now in Canada. You know, you can have a certain number of plants and as long as you don't break certain rules, you can have more than enough to... Uh, take care of the typical use that people have for the flower. But, um, at some point I'm pretty sure there's going to be like a, how to maximize your use of every part of that plant. And I'm just going to write a little note to self, you know, and all of the books I plan on writing in the next 20 years, maybe I'll squeeze in a book on you know, all the cool things you can do it as an ad at home, you know, cannabis grower. So you can use the whole plant. Yeah. And I could even see like, uh, in our modern day, for them to add something like this to like maybe like a booster juice or somewhere like that where, you know, we can actually have cannabis shots. And, and yeah. And the, the medical benefit of that stuff is astounding. Like I'm, I'm so glad, honestly, just from a legal point of view that cannabis is somewhat more legal in Canada. Cause for a couple of decades, I was always sticking my proverbial toe, toe in a potentially slamming door of the law, trying to help 
like cancer patients and other patients access what they needed and use it properly. And, um, I mean, I'm supervising, I can't remember exactly how many people right now using medical cannabis for cancer. So, um, but I, I mean, I recommend using the whole thing, juice the leaves, you know, get the concentrate. CBD is profoundly important. It isn't just about the fact that it makes your mind go different in different directions. I mean, that's a nice little side effect. And for some people, it's actually something they have, they need to avoid, you know, but I think for most people interested in cannabis, Qigong meditation, you know, I guess we should maybe keep that conversation focused on them. But I just wanted to cover the, the history and the breadth and the amazing benefit of all the different parts of this plant. Wow. So then with like with, cause obviously the cannabis now is, it's quite a bit different than some of the stuff from thousands of years ago. Um, can we touch on what's different from modern day ca- cannabis and maybe go into a little bit of detail with that? Well, the main thing is the percent of THC um, per gram uh, of the flower, uh, as well as the ratio of THC to CBD. So back in the 60s and 70s when cannabis was, you know, really kind of starting to, you know, waggle a little bit in the... Uh, the minds of um, 20th century North Americans, or I guess uh, the developed world, I think the maximum percentages were around 12, 13%, and they were like 4 to 6% CBD. So CBD doesn't compete with THC, but it mediates the high. And, and some of the side effects like, you know, suddenly needing to eat bags of potato chips or something. Um, but, uh, nowadays, you know, I can walk down the street, literally, I don't know, a Frisbee throw from where I am right now and buy something that's 28% THC and less than 1% CBD. And I wouldn't want to do that because that stuff's just not fun, well, at least for me, but, um, but that, that's where things have changed, you know, and unfortunately, um, and I understand like from a street drug point of view over the last 30 or 40 years, if you're a grower and a seller, the more you can make it like a street drug that's going to mess people up as much as possible, as fast as possible for as long as possible. So they keep buying your product. You know, that's been 30, 40 years of the primary focus on people is this has to be the stuff that lays people out or trips them out so much because that's, I mean, that's just, like I said, that's just people who are going to do that stuff. From a clinical Mm -hmm. point of view, medical point of view, especially for young people, uh, having, you know, rocket ship cannabis from the time you're 14 is not optimal for the human brain, not optimal for um, having an ally versus having um, a magic genie that's screwing with you more than helping you. You know, cause I, I mean, I can't imagine I, I've had conversations with my son. He's 21 now. And, uh, we live in a community where cannabis is, you know, actually a big part of the economy. So, uh, he got into it quite young and we had conversations about that, about, well, you know, maybe we should get something to balance this out or, you know, space out use and, and intensity so that you don't end up actually messing with the structure of your brain and the structure of your identity. 
Because stage shift is a birthright, but it's also a really great way to just blow off steam. And it's also a way to make a lot of excuses and run away and hide. So, you know, especially when you can get something that's rocket fuel for the brain uh, as children, that's, that's not turning out so great. Um, having said that, though, from a pro-cannabis clinical point of view, it's incredibly beneficial for a person like me to talk to my patients about kind of milligrams per kilogram of THC and, you know, using them as suppositories that aren't psychoactive versus edibles that are psychoactive versus just using CBD, which is not primarily psychoactive in the way THC is. So nowadays we can, you know, we can buy plants or extracts like Phoenix Tears, which is like a tar 80%, you know, THC per milligram, which is stunning to think about. Um, so now we can actually design and, and mix things together for people, uh, the way you would a pharmaceutical, you know, so, so we can be really precise, but I've also seen, and and actually had to go to, you know, to the hospital a few times for, uh, especially old frail people who get their hands on high concentrates and just take a tiny little thing, like a quarter of a rice grain of something like Phoenix tears. And they end up in the hospital, you know, borderline psychotic break because they have no experience with being that high and they're, you know, on another planet kind of high. And I've, I've had a couple of experiences like that. Um, when I was working in the cannabis industry, making medical products a few years ago, mixing cannabis concentrates with different herbal medicines to, to see what we could do to optimize, you know, patient care and me being the, I guess the (laughs) alchemist or whatever, stirring this stuff up to see, you know, what happens if I mix this with these plants to make this work. Uh, and then I would try it because, you know seems like a good idea. And I, I can remember, you know, lying in bed, praying to gods. I don't actually believe in that. I'm going to survive being this high, <laughs> you know, so that, that there's always pros and cons to things, but, uh, with modern, really high test, high potency cannabis, it is, it is pros and cons, you know, like it's, it's so much easier to get really, uh, sense addicted to cannabis when, you know, within four minutes of smoking a joint, um, you're, you're like wrecked, Mm -hmm. but that's not really meant that's, that's, that's not state shift. That's hitting yourself on the, you know, head with a cartoon sledgehammer that makes little birds fly around and takes over your mind for, you know, an hour and a half. So, you know, maybe that's entertaining, but it's not safe for a lot of people. Yeah, and, and I would say if we go into even like a government store, that's 80 to 90% of what's there. <clears throat> so, in, so in order to take it kind of on a more therapeutic level, uh, one would have to be pretty knowledgeable and careful with that. Yeah, uh, before, before cannabis was legalized, we were in this really weird... Um, it was about two years before it was legalized in Canada where a bunch of shops just became like medical dispensaries without having any legal right to do so. But because it was going to be legalized, the government couldn't really do the same thing that we're doing before that. And that was the heyday because that's when people like me would actually go into a cannabis, medical cannabis dispensary. And, uh, 
I worked with one for a couple of years where there was a room that I would like, it was a private soundproof room where my job was to go in there and educate people uh, specifically around their condition, what's available, what mixtures of cannabis and say Chinese herbs or, uh, you know, other kind of medicinal herbs and plants, you know, people could use clinically and specifically for their condition, how to be very careful, um, around not overdoing it around, uh, harm reduction, especially around people trying to replace addiction to one chemical, you know, and trying to use cannabis to, to free themselves, uh, from a hard chemical addiction and, you know, all of that. But then as soon as recreational cannabis was legalized, I, no one was allowed to do that anymore. It's just for recreational use. You're not allowed to like talk about it. <laughs> like it's a medical thing anymore. Although people still do, and we're actually having that kind of a conversation right now. But um, there's definitely no doctor sitting in a cannabis dispensary offering you specific clinical advice for your particular illness or uh, health concern, or just how to use it the best, perhaps, to augment your Qigong or meditation, or perhaps to not use it anymore because of the kind of Qigong or meditation you're using or you're practicing. So uh, there's a lot of specifics, you know, to... Uh, speak to in that direction too yeah are you are you aware of anything in the future that could be in that direction because yeah it's kind of interesting that um, we went to the recreational route when i'm sure there's a lot of data on you know using it correctly for illnesses and Mm -hmm. state shift and all this yeah well there's people um that are, are doing that it's just with how you know, Canadian medicine works because it's sort of socialized healthcare, uh, which means the government doesn't want to spend money on things that um, it can avoid spending money on. You know, we have some of the best healthcare in the world, except that, you know, you have to kind of sometimes push the system a little bit to get things moving the way you might want to. And, you know, having said that, the pharmaceutical industry, uh, during the two years that we had the gold rush of medical cannabis before it was legalized, they lost 25% of their business in Canada because, wow. you know, I mean, Canada is a big country, but it only, it has about the population of Mexico city, you know, and it's fairly centralized in the sense of high population areas. Um, so when something like medical cannabis came around, it wasn't, it took, I think like two months before every large city or small town, you know, that had access to the internet, had running medical cannabis dispensaries with doctors helping people. Uh, so yeah, like the pharmaceutical people were pretty freaked out at, you know, 25% drop in their income. And they, of course, as I'm sure we all know, have influence over how most things are presented around healthcare, you know, but there are still, you know, doctors who help patients get access to the specific, you know, um, producers that are licensed to, you know, support patients. But again, it's really what we're allowed to do um, is unfortunately really narrow because it could be like the gold rush. Like we could be doing so many different things so much more skillfully and effectively from, again, from a clinical point of view. Yeah. Hopefully that happens in the future. I, I have I have optimism on that front. Yeah, well, it's sort of it's always going to be happening in the grassroots sense. But you know, for for me, I guess um, I like efficiency. So if the entire population of 
the part of the world I work in knew more about this, then I would spend a lot less time explaining that to people and we could focus on exactly the, the details that are for them, right? Uh, so I guess yeah, I'm, I'm a little uh, frustrated and resentful about having been a part of the gold rush and going, oh my God, we can you know save so many people and get 25% of the country off of pharmaceuticals for real. Um, and now we're kind of back in the, it's just for getting, you know, really high and, you know, go to your doctor and take your pills and shut up. Right. You know, but hopefully, you know, um, other countries that might have different, uh, approaches to this over a few years will present us all with enough evidence and enough research and enough proof that, um, there's ways to use it medically that are safe and effective and, you know, uh, well-established in some way. Cause that's always the tricky sure. part is all doctors will say, well, there's not enough evidence. And it's like, have you thought about this historically at all? <laughs> so, yeah, no doubt. Um, so kind of keeping on track a little bit. So, you know, we've, uh, kind of gone through the medical perspective and some of the contemporary uses and, you know, THC. So how do we actually use this with Qigong and what's like a safe way of, of putting these two things together? And, and, and I guess my question would be, uh, what kind of, of effect would that have on your practice? Uh, well, this would probably be a good time to take our little mid-reel, mid-show break, and then we can come back and just focus on that. Does that sound cool? Yeah, let's do it. Perfect. So, wow, I'm pretty blown away about the fact that you can use the root, the stalk, the leaf, the flower, the seed, and I guess it's kind of like a 360 plant that we have so many uses for that's that's a lot of great information let's take a short break and digest that and why don't we come back to part two where we kind of get into the qigong and cannabis aspect and i'm pretty excited for that so let's take a little break here and we'll come back for part two and if you do or don't decide to roll up something while you're listening to the show that's entirely up to you In the spirit of patience, let's take a short intermission. When you are ready for part two, tap the link below.